You may be seated. Good morning. It's great to be back. Great to be able to worship with you all. We always feel a, a special place in our heart when we come back to grace, and especially now because we realize that really this is our only home, <laughs> literally. So um, thank you for, for welcoming us, and we look forward to getting in touch with you guys again, chatting, catching up. Please turn to Psalm 34. It will be the text that we're going to consider this morning, along with First Peter. But... Um, Psalm 34 as the primary text we'll be looking at. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Well, I can attest that living in a foreign culture is difficult. Those of you that have no idea who we are or have never met us, um, we've um, lived in Costa Rica as missionaries for the last four years where I was professor of New Testament. Part of the reason it's difficult to live in a foreign culture um, is not just the language. It actually runs much deeper than that. See, in a different culture, you have different values, different expectations, and different ways of doing things. Probably the most tangible first lesson I had in this was driving. Okay? Um, And what happens when you're in a culture that has different values and expectations and ways of doing things is when you don't do that thing the way that they do, they get very frustrated. So, for instance, I'm sitting at a red light in a left, left-hand turn. My, my lane is red, but there's no cars coming. And there's five cars behind me honking, laying on the horn, not just two, two, you know, all of them. Irate, throwing up their hands. What are you doing? Looking around, what do you mean, what am I doing? It's red light. There's no cars coming. Turn. Well, about, you know, three or four times of doing this, you begin to understand that that's the way that they do things there. They turn on red lights. It doesn't matter if it's red. Um, Another time, we had the misfortune of having a, a, a driveway that comes down a hill, and we have to turn left into the driveway. Now, you would think, I'm driving, there's cars behind me, I'm slowing down, I'm going to turn into my driveway, they're surely going to wait for me to turn. Well, all the cars pass by on the left, 
And I, you know, I'm not expecting that. So as I turn, I look and honk the horn, and they're yelling at me, what are you doing? You know you're supposed to let us pass? Okay. Another thing uh, if I learned is that when you want to, there's lots of traffic in, in, in Costa Rica, and, and, and two lanes is really four lanes, and, and so you've got you know, a pile of just these cars all in this one area, and you, want, you need to get over to that area. You know? And so I politely pull up, I turn on my blinker and, and wait. Surely they'll, somebody's going to let me in. I got my blinker on, right? Okay, like a minute, two minutes, and people behind me honking, come on, you dummy, what are you doing? Well, and as I began to watch and observe week after week, I learned that really this signal means nothing. What you have to do for whatever reason is roll down your window, stick out your hand like this, just, you just go like this, and they let you in. It's like magic. <laughs> But in the process of learning this new culture and this new way of doing things, it's very frustrating. People are yelling at you. People are honking. People are calling you names. Fortunately, I have no idea what names are calling me. I never, one thing I never learned was the Spanish cuss words. Um, but one thing you have a choice to make when you're in that situation, when you're living in another culture and they're doing things in a different way, you have a choice to make. Do I continue doing it my way and incur the wrath of a nation? <laughs> or do I adjust and do it the way they do it? Let's ask Bill and Karen what I decided to do. <laughs> I have to admit, in this case, I, I, I adapted very well. I enjoy passing on sidewalks into the left and turning on red lights. And in fact, it's very difficult to adjust back to the United States. You would, can't imagine how fun it is to be able to break every traffic law. Well, I, I bring this up because in, in, in many ways, being a Christian is living in a foreign culture. It means being a sojourner or a resident alien. It means living in a foreign land, even if we've been born in this land and have grown up in this land our entire lives. Being a Christian means that as we interact, inter relate with our family and our friends and our co-workers and our classmates and our fellow people on the road, that they're going to have different values and different expectations and different ways of doing things. And we are going to be frustrated by that. People may even be frustrated with us. They may try to, you know, in the metaphorically honk the horn at us or yell at us because we don't do things the way that it's done. And we're going to have a choice to make as sojourners and as resident aliens. Are we going to just do it the way it's done here in this country? Or are we going to continue to do what it is that we're called to do and incur whatever comes our way? Affliction, tribulation. It's curious to me that one of the, one of the primary goals of every book in the New Testament is to wrestle with this truth, this fact that we are sojourners, we are resident aliens, we live in a foreign culture. In other words, the New Testament is trying to teach us in its various forms, in its various epistles and letters, that our identity, the way that we do things, the way that we organize our lives, the values that we take, do not come from our ethnic place of origin. They do not come from, um, from, well, it's just the way it's done here. Our values, our expectations, our agenda, our view in mind comes from the implications of Jesus, his death, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And every, every writer in the New Testament, save perhaps Philemon, 
and even so, I could argue Philemon, they're wrestling with that. And so we find, for example, in Romans, you got Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way up until 11. Basically, Paul is, is, is forming identity. He's telling them who you are. This is who you are now because of Jesus. You no longer define yourself as a Jew. You no longer define yourself as a Gentile. You no longer live the way you used to live. And what does he say in chapter 12? Therefore, in view of God's mercy, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is that renewing of your mind? Verses uh, chapter 1 through 11. Sojourners, foreigners in our own land. Ephesians 4 picks up on this. Paul picks up on this as he's writing to, to the church at Ephesus. And he, he says in, in chapter, uh, chapter 4, and I want you guys to look at this one actually. So flip to, to Ephesians chapter 4. Girls eat potato chips, Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians, or Grace EPC. Okay? Chapter 4, verse 17. He says, Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live. Let's think about that for a minute. Who is he writing to? Gentiles. Perhaps your translation says pagans. It's the same idea. It's the word that describes non-Jews. It's Asia Minor, okay? Uh, Turkey nowadays. It'd be, like, it'd be like writing and saying, okay, you Americans, no longer live like Americans. I mean, that's what's going on here. Is they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former life. Your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to clothe yourselves with the new self. Created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now I could spend a whole sermon on this passage. It's wonderful, especially this little phrase here where it says, um, your former way of life, your old self, and then it talks about close yourself with the new self. And that's not in, in the context of Ephesians and, in, 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 and even in the original language, it's not speaking to individuals. It's speaking to corporate groups. It's saying you no longer belong to this group, the old, literally it's the old man, Adam. And his descendants. But you belong to the new man. The new self. Which is Christ. And because of that. You have been created. And you have a new image to follow. And a new way of life. It's this whole idea. of we're, we're in a new culture. We have a new way of doing things. We have new values. We have new expectations. Peter picks up on this whole idea. In, his, in, in 1 Peter. He starts off his letter by establishing exactly who we are as Christians. The metaphor, he has, a, he has a controlling metaphor that he uses throughout the letter that he wants us to use as our framework for understanding what it means to be a Christian. What does he say? Peter, to the elect sojourners, or to the elect resident aliens. They aren't literal resident aliens. They haven't immigrated into the Asia Minor. No. He's saying that because culturally now, though they once fit in very well with the culture because they were a part of it, because they have been born again, verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, born anew, they now have a new place, uh, place of origin which implies a new way of life, a new way of doing things. What's going on in 1 Peter? Suffering. Affliction. Why? Because these people now are living differently and everyone else around them are frustrated. No, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to live like that. You're supposed to show up to the uh, emperor worship meetings. Why weren't you there? You're supposed to show up to the parties and the orgies. Why weren't you there? 
not being there, you're going you're gonna to really mess up. The gods are going to get mad. And if we have a fire or a famine, it's all your fault. And that's what's going on. What does Peter say? Verse 14, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers. You take every single epistle in the New Testament except Philemon, and you will find two themes, either major or they're minor themes, but they're there. One is identity formation. In other words, where the writer, whether it be it Paul or Peter or John, they're trying to get these people to understand who they are in light of Jesus and how to live in light of that. And the other theme is suffering or affliction, trials. Why is that? They go together. If you're going to be a sojourner, if you're going to be a resident alien, if you're going to live in a world that is opposed, either consciously or unconsciously, to what you're doing, you are going to experience and get lots of opportunities for affliction, trials, troubles. So what does this have to do with Psalm 34? (laughs) I can hear you saying that. Well, it has everything to do with Psalm 34. Because Psalm 34 is a message to people who experience affliction and difficulty. And it's a reminder that this is normal. That if you're going to align yourself to God, if you're going to follow God, as the term they use often, fearing God, righteous. If you're going to be that kind of a person, you ought to expect Affliction. What does he say in uh, uh, verse uh, 19? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But it also tells us and teaches us what we are to do with that sort of frustration, that affliction, that trouble, that, those difficulties. And David, using his own personal experience of being in a situation where he calls on God and he asks God to deliver and God delivers then turns and invites everyone else to do the same. Give God a try. Taste and see that He's good. He will deliver you. So it's a very simple, basic message. But it's one that sojourners and resident aliens need to hear all the time. Why? Because every single day, we are being, whether directly or indirectly, We are being tempted to conform to our host culture. That is is difficult. When you live, if you've ever lived in a foreign culture and everything you're doing is wrong, it's exasperating. And most of the time, the only relief you can find is by simply doing it that way, the way that everybody else does it. That's the only relief you find. And what Psalm 34 is saying is don't go that route. Turn to God. God is your refuge. God will deliver you. You see, ever since mankind became alienated from God, anyone who wishes to follow God now is living in a cross-cultural situation. Living in a world that's characterized as being alienated and exiled from God means that if you choose to walk the ways of God, you will be frustrated. You will be, you will, you will find resistance. That's why Paul can write uh, and does write, uh, shockingly, in two different occasions. One time in Acts 14, he doesn't actually write this, but he says this. He says to his, to this church, that he, different churches he's just planted in, Um, on his uh, journey he gathers them together before he leaves this is after he's been like kicked out of every single town he gathers them together and he says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god acts 14 12 later on when he's writing to timothy perhaps his uh, second timothy perhaps his last letter that he, he wrote he says to to his young disciple 
all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. I think one of the issues that we have as North American Christians when we hear that term persecuted or tribulation is we immediately call up images of, uh, perhaps not images, but thoughts of um, Christians being thrown to the lions. Or uh, Christians being used as uh, uh, light posts, light torches for Nero's garden. And so we think, well, you know, that's not going to happen to me. So what does this have to really say to me? What does, what does Acts 14.22 have to, to, to say to me? But the reality is, is that those sorts of sufferings throughout the Christian history have been the exception rather than the norm. And that Christian suffering throughout history has actually been much more subtle, much less direct. comes in various forms. Perhaps in our day, the most common is, is social ostracism or peer pressure. You know, where, where we're just kind of expected to put our Christianity in its little box and stow it away when we go to work. Because, you know, you don't... There's certain things you just do in work. Don't be bringing your Jesus stuff in here. We don't do it like that here. You know, or, 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 or you go to, go to college or you go to high school and, and you, you begin to notice that, you know, there's just a certain way that life is done. Certain things we say to one another, certain things we do on weekends, and that's just what everybody does. And so if you want to be part of a group, you've got to do it. Unfortunately, we're called to live in spite of that. We're called to, to not buy into peer pressure. To buy into peer pressure is, 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 is much like what I did driving in Costa Rica. Everyone's honking the horn at me. Everybody's telling me how to drive and do this. Peer pressure is basically saying, drive like we do. And um, God calls us to another route. He calls us to maintain the driving laws that he's given us. And that's going to mean that people are going to continue to be frustrated. If it's not peer pressure that is afflicting us in some way, in one way or another, it's just the simple fact that we live in a fallen world. We all have to experience that. We all live with the fact that our bosses don't appreciate our jobs. Perhaps we, we, we live with, in, in the fallen world, spouses, they don't, they don't love us the way we want to be loved. They don't do the kind of things that we expect them to do. Our kids perhaps maybe didn't turn out the way we thought they were going to turn out or we'd hoped or prayed bank account's not as quite as full as expected. I don't have enough that I need for all the things that I want. And if it's not that, then it's friends or family who can't cure the loneliness that I have in my own heart. It's the millions and millions of voices and images that we hear daily. Perhaps millions is an exaggeration, but you get what I'm saying. The voices and the images that daily tell us who we are, who we could be, how to achieve a happy, good, fulfilling life if we would only... Most of these messages appeal to our already heightened sense of selfishness and desire for comfortability. You deserve a break today. Have it your way. Yeah, 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 you're right. And if we're not being seduced by the images within this fallen world that tell us, to, that try and shape us and form us, we can just become utterly discouraged by the news. Cancer. Unemployment. Oil prices are up. Heart disease. Tsunamis, hurricanes earthquakes. And even as we read those stories of these natural disasters, we begin to realize that even tectonic plates and climate patterns 
are all groaning for the same thing we are, which is redemption. Redemption from living in a fallen world where things are not working the way they were intended. So as we as sojourners live in this very real world that we experience every day with the images, with the temptations, with the, with the calls to, to conform, the question we have to ask is how are we going to survive? What are we going to do with this affliction? What are we going to do with our frustrations? What are we going to do when these troubles come upon us? How are we going to not conform to the world? So I ask this question first. What do you do? Where do you turn when someone's honking the horn at you? Where do you turn when your work or your co-workers or your classmates are... Are, are, are tempting you, are, 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 are seducing you to follow their ways. What do you do when you have no more resources? What do you do when you have no recourse? What do you do when you're fearful? Where do you turn when you have no other option? And that's an important question because our host culture, that is, this world we live in, gives us several different options. Just give in. Go along. It's all relative anyways. Truth is always defined by the community itself anyways, so just just go along. It's fine. You're getting all hung up. Or one of my favorites is, is force. Mere force. What do I do when, when as a parent my children aren't doing what I tell them to do? They won't go in the direction that I'm wanting them to go. I yell. It works great. They go exactly where I want them to go after I yell a few times. Well, what is that producing in me and in them? Deceit. Deceit's an easy way out. Just lie. Or maybe we turn to, to sex or alcohol. Or we fly. We run away. We deny. Oh, no, this, this isn't the world we live in. This is all appearances. One of the most attractive things about the theology behind the Da Vinci Code or Gnosticism, the resurgence of Gnosticism nowadays, is just exactly that. It's a complete denial. The way, that, the way in, through Gnosticism, the way that you deal with the world is by denying that it actually matters. You long for this extra disembodied experience that will come one day. That's not dealing with it. We all know that that doesn't really solve the problems. Psalm 34 teaches us what we should do. Psalm 34 instructs us how to maintain our, our foreignness within our own host culture. What does David do? Verse 4. I sought the Lord. Verse 6. This poor man cried out. That's what we're supposed to do. I know you've heard this a million times. But we need to be reminded as sojourners and resident aliens. That's what we're called to do. When we find ourselves in a situation where we have no more recourse. Where people around us are frustrated at us. Because we are trying to honor God. Cry out to God. Ask for help. What happened in David's case? Verse 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me. And He delivered me from all my fears. Interestingly, um, without getting way too technical, um, when the Hebrew um, Bible was translated into Greek, um, it was translated into Greek because no one spoke Hebrew anymore. And people around the Mediterranean world wanted to understand the scriptures, but they didn't speak Hebrew. So, they, so when they translated into Greek from Egypt, they didn't. Um, some of the translations they didn't understand um, 
Hebrew really well, and if, you, if you've studied any Hebrew at all, you know that Hebrew doesn't have vowels, it just has consonants. Well, when they translated this, uh, he delivered me from all my fears, they translated it in Greek, he, uh, he delivered me from all of my sojournings. Um, why is that important? Well, it's just interesting because here's uh, Jews living in Egypt who look at this word and it doesn't have any vowels. And it could either mean in Hebrew fears or sojournings. And they didn't know which way to go because there were no vowels. And so they translated it sojournings. Because who were they? They were people living in a foreign land, dealing with affliction and tribulation. And so they translated it this way so as it would speak afresh to their own cultural situation. Interestingly enough, too, Peter, who wrote 1 Peter, if you read Psalm 34 and you read 1 Peter in their original languages, it is very clear that when Peter is writing to his sojourners, his resident aliens in Pontus and Galatia and Phrygia and all of them, he is basically using Psalm 34 as his text. And he is, you can tell, um, not as much in the English translation, but in, in, when you look at an original language, you can tell that he is he's basically writing to them with one eye on Psalm 34 and then the other eye thinking about Jesus, trying to encourage them. And his point is the same. What do you do when you're in trial? Seek the Lord and he will deliver you. So God responded to David. And what does David do? Keep it to himself? That's cool, yeah. I'm not going to, don't want to affect anybody by my own religion. Don't want to bring that out into the public. So I'm just going to go keep that to myself. No, what does he say? Magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. Have you ever met people like that? I met, I, I know a friend of mine, I used, we used to be on staff together. He was at K-State and I was at KU. And he became an evangelist for Mexican food. Because he found a great Mexican restaurant in Manhattan. And he was so excited about it that everybody on staff, whether it be here in Kansas City, had to go with him to try this food out because it was so good. And we're just kind of like that as humans. When we find something good... We want everybody else to know about it. You know? And so that's what David's doing here in verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What we have here is is an invitation. It's not just a a doctrine. The, 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 The goodness of God. No. He's saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Try it out for yourself. Take all that you know about God and put it into action. Only then will you know that God is good. One of the pleasures that we had while living in Costa Rica was Outback Steakhouse. It was about an hour from our house. And every, you know, three or four months we would uh, uh, take it upon ourselves to suffer and go to Outback Steakhouse. And um, it was a glorious experience, not just for the beef. I mean, Costa Rican beef is not very good, so you know, anytime you can get a real hamburger, it was great. But more for the dessert. There's a dessert at Outback Steakhouse, and this is dangerous at 12 o'clock to be talking about this, but nevertheless. There's a dessert at, uh, I don't remember the name, it's something like something something brownie delight. Okay, yeah, she knows. There we go. <laughs> We'll sin together. <laughs> and what it is, is this massive dish, you know, with this big brownie with nuts. And then on top of that is this heap of like two or three scoops of ice cream. And then on top of that is um, uh, chocolate syrup and then sprinkled cho- or slivers of chocolate and then whipped cream. And then I think they even put maybe some more nuts on it and then they put a cherry on top. And it is good. But the thing about it is, is we could talk about how good it is all day. How the chocolate just melts in your mouth. How the, how the temperature of the brownie is such that it 
it gently melts the, the, the ice cream as it oozes over the sides. You talk about what it feels like to have that fudge just circulating in your mouth mixed with that vanilla flavor. But if you don't take a spoon and take a piece out of it and put it in your mouth and taste it, you will really never know. And that's what David is saying. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I was just curious. I I wanted to know if there was a disorder, a taste disorder, where you actually lose your, your taste. And I, you know, Internet's wonderful. You can find anything on there. Sure enough, there's a disorder called agusia, which is where you lose uh, the, the, your sense of taste, and, uh, and, in, and in many cases, along with that, your sense of smell. And I was curious to know if there was any side effects to it. And it turns out that there are. The primary side effect of agusia is that you begin to, uh, your quality of life is diminished, and in most cases, people with agusia suffer um, some form of depression. You also begin to lose desire to eat. You don't want to eat anymore because you can't taste anything. Um, and in many cases, it can be very dangerous to have agusia. Because what happens is you end up ingesting foods that are either uh, spoiled, or if you're allergic to something, you, you can no longer, your, your body no longer knows that you're ingesting that thing that you're allergic to, and you can become very sick from this disorder. And as I thought about that, I wondered. If in some cases we don't suffer from spiritual agusia, where we have lost the ability to taste God, where we have become so content with theological knowledge, with having all our ducks lined up in a row, with understanding how everything fits together, that we actually replace that for what we're really called to do, and that is believe in God. And then we can't understand why it is that we feel cold and distant. And that we question God's goodness. And perhaps those of us who are suffering from spiritual agusia. Perhaps that explains why we are no longer wanting to feed ourselves from the word. Perhaps that explains why we may be ingesting things that aren't good for us. Other foods out there. And there's a smorgasbord of them out there. So David reminds us that spiritual formation is not just, though it's important, is not just theological knowledge, but it's putting that into practice. And especially when you're in a tight situation, when you're being challenged, when you're being afflicted, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, what kind of person can expect God to deliver them when they're in affliction? I'm not going to go into full exposition of that here, but it's, I find it interesting. There's a contrast of two kinds of people in this psalm. The first is the young lion. You see that in verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger. What does that mean? A young lion, for me as a metaphor, doesn't really do much. So I had to do a little digging. What, what would that kind of what would that evoke in, in the in the time of this psalm? Well, a young lion is a symbol of self sufficiency. I mean, if there's anybody that's not going to have any troubles and any afflictions, it's like a four year old lion. I mean, what do you, who's going to mess with them? They go out and get their food whenever they want. They throw around people whenever they want. You mess with them, they bite your head off. That's self-sufficiency. And yet, using that metaphor, David says, a young lion, you want to be a young lion? You want to be like that? Self-sufficient, I do it all myself. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be in want. The other flip side is, you know, even we see it in the beginning, he says, uh, when he says, you know, I'll bless the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Let the humble hear or the meek or the lowly, those afflicted. Um, later on in verse six, he says, the po- this this poor man cried out. 
poor in the sense of he had no resources. He can't just go out and strike it up on his own. He's not a young lion. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those are the kind of people that God wants to rescue. And one of the greatest works that God does in our lives is he convinces us that we're poor in spirit and that we're weak. I remember uh, first becoming a Christian in college um, and having come out of a background where uh, basically I kind of made up my own religion and it was all about doing and how I could do all kinds of good stuff and control basically reality by the by the power of the mind. I mean, it was wacky stuff, you know what I mean? And, and um, I, I just basically picked and choose from all kinds of stuff. I, I literally thought that I could, I could control reality by thinking positively. And then I became a Christian, and my world was rocked pretty severely. And, um, and then I remember somebody coming up to me, a friend, saying, oh, I can't believe you just became a Christian. I mean, religion is just a crutch for weak people. And at first when he said that, I was like, hey, man. I started thinking about it. And I said, you know what? You're right. Yeah. Jesus is a crutch. And I'm weak. And until you understand that, you will be in lack also. So if you're weak and you're humble and you find yourself in need, call on God and he will respond. Well, I can see, I can hear the rumblings of the stomach. So let me, let me end here. Um, let me end by reading one more time what I see as sort of the summary message of this psalm. And then I want to reflect on a, a few brief um, implications. Verse 17 of Psalm 34. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. Delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in the spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What does this mean for us? Well, one thing that it means is that I've heard it. I've heard it said before that won't that won't, won't hurt you, or won't kill you, will help you, something like that, something like that. I forget all the sayings in English now. But you know what I'm saying? There's a saying, some sort of proverb. You know that won't that which won't kill you will make you strong. That's what it is. And in other words, uh, affliction in and of itself is is um, is it character forming? You know what? That's not true. Affliction in and of itself is not character forming. I know a lot of bitter people who have lived a lot of affliction. But God can use affliction and difficulty to build character if we call on God. If we depend upon him while in that circumstance. Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in no thing. It's when the testing is a testing of your faith. Other implication of this is that what we find is that David has been in trial has called upon God. God has responded in a way that brings forth praise in his life. And then he invites other people to do the same. And in so doing, he's encouraging us to put our hope and trust and faith in God in times of trial. And what that means in one sense is that as you are enduring trials... That God is using you to encourage. As you respond as David did, by turning to God, by enduring, by bearing up under. God is using you, even in times where you're not aware of it, 
He's using you to encourage others to maintain their faith. And finally, I'm intrigued by, uh, as I mentioned before, one of the implications of Psalm 34 is that it's um, is to look at Psalm 34 in the light of Jesus, because that's what that's what uh, Peter is doing, and, and and actually the message of Psalm 34 is intensified when you look at it through the lens of of Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate righteous one, and he suffered, and he suffered on our behalf. He suffered so that we would not have to endure the wrath that he experienced. And what happened to him? He was crucified. Oh, wait, that's, that's not good news. Wait, crucified Messiah. That's an oxymoron. There's only Messiahs who do the Johnny Rambo and come in and take over. But there's no such thing as crucified messiahs. Crucified messiah is a failed messiah. That's what they thought. Cleopas on the way back from uh, from Jerusalem onto Emmaus, what does he say? Well, we thought that he was the one that was going to redeem us. And then alongside walks somebody that he didn't recognize. Who was that? That was Jesus. Resurrected Jesus. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection vindicates Jesus' suffering. And it tells us that Jesus, Jesus' suffering was for a reason and it was accepted by God. And Jesus was delivered from death and given new life. That's why it says that he's the first fruit of what awaits us. And so when we look at Jesus, we see the ultimate righteous one being delivered in a situation that looked like he lost. He was defeated. He was embarrassed. Hung naked on a cross. But three days later, he was vindicated and raised. What's fascinating to me is that Jesus is the central figure in 1 Peter. As these people are struggling in 1 Peter to, to, to live out this new faith that they've found. The climax of the argument of the letter centers upon a little quote from Isaiah. Where Peter says, Jesus has left us a pattern that we are to follow. We are to follow in his footsteps. And what does that mean? Suffering. Entrusting ourselves to the Creator. Why is that? What does that have to do with Psalm 34? Every single Sunday in the first century in church, as the bishop gave the communion, they would read Psalm 34. And as they broke the bread, and as they... The bread that symbolized Christ's broken body, his suffering. As they looked at the blood that signified the ratification of the new covenant. And the suffering that that it took for that to happen. They would focus on verse 8 of Psalm 34. Taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why were they able to say that? Just because he died? No. Because he raised from the dead. And what resurrection tells us is that God is not done yet fixing this world. That he is actually going to finish what he started. And that he is going to put to right everything that is wrong right now. And our evidence of that, when we, are in, when we are in times of trial where we do not believe that that's going to happen, where we cannot understand how this world works the way it is, when we look and say, there is not a good God out there, what do we need to do? Taste and see that the Lord is good. His suffering 
was for a purpose. And His resurrection proves that God is about renewing this world and He is going to make right all wrong. So the next time you celebrate communion, think about it in that sense. As we celebrate Christ's death, and as it says in 1 Corinthians, and His return, we're also celebrating the fact that God has begun His project of renewing the world, making all things right. What does it say in Romans 8? And it's not just us who are waiting redemption. It's the world groaning for redemption. Revelation 20 and 21 say that the heavens are going to come down onto earth and the earth will be renewed. We're not going to be living in disembodied spirits in in the clouds for the rest of our lives. God is going to give us new bodies and He's going to make His world new and right and we'll no longer be sojourners exiled from His garden. We will live in the garden in His world and all will be right and all will seek to worship and all will seek to honor Him. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be blessing Him, serving Him, and following Him. No one will be honking their horns at us for living differently. Because everybody will be living to honor Jesus. That's what awaits us. Please pray.